You're listening to the Kilcullen Diary Podcasts. Stories and sound from a village grown bigger. Hello, I'm Brian Byrne. In this episode of the Kilcullen Diary Podcasts, we're looking back many thousands of years into an ancient gathering place outside Kilcullen. Dunoilna is one of the old royal sites of Ireland, located on a private farm a few kilometres south of the town. A place of ritual reputed to the ancient kings of Leinster. In conjunction with the sites at Tara in Meath, Navan Fort in Ulster and Rakrohan in Connacht, it's in a process towards consideration to be declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Since the late 1960s, there have been several archaeological investigations on Dunoilne, which have shown evidence of it being a place where people came together on regular occasions from the Iron Age until around the 6th century AD. The first set of excavations were carried out by Dr Bernard Wales from the University of Pennsylvania in the 1960s and 1970s. The most recent ones over the last four years were directed by Dr Susan Johnston from the Department of Anthropology at George Washington University. She and her teams of archaeology students have become a summer fixture in Kilcullen, usually ending with a convivial talk about the latest dig in the Heritage Centre. This year, that regular trip to Dunoilne had to be cancelled because of the pandemic. Since she couldn't come here, I talked to Susan from her home in Washington. I asked her how she had become interested in archaeology. So my father was an anthropologist. He studied totally different stuff than I do. I mean, he was interested in living people and in particular the the interaction of nutrition and culture. He was particularly interested in studying sort of how how people see eating and how that affects the choices that they make and so on and how that affects their nutrition and so on. He also was interested in archaeology and that kind of stuff and and so I actually, I lived in England when I was eight years old for a year because he had a fellowship to study in London. And it's become a family joke that he, he would take us to all these archaeological sites. And I was eight. I don't, you know, I didn't care. He was, no, this is a Roman road. And I was like, it looks like a pile of rocks. I'm eight. I don't care. <laughs> so, so Roman walls came to be like a family joke, you know, that dad would drag us to all this stuff. So, so, I mean, on the one hand, it wasn't what my father did. But it was probably, I can't deny that it was probably the exposure to those things that got me interested in it. But honestly, when I got into, I've always been interested in history. I was initially interested in history, written history. And then the more I got into it, the older it got. And I got interested in older and older and older things. And I will say, to this day, some years later, <laughs> I, I still remember going to Stonehenge when I was eight. And I, at that time, it was open to the public. I mean, there were no, there were no barriers or anything. And, and I, I remember, I remember thinking, you know, how did they, even at eight, you know, so how did they do that? I mean, the stones are huge. And, and why did they do it? That's a strange thing to do. And so on. so I, I think you can argue that I was interested in it always. Um, having said that, my BA, my undergraduate degree is in English literature. So the other thing I love to do is read books. So I, I, that was what I was going to do. And then I went to um, Durham University for my 
junior year in the U.S. We do four, so it's my third year. And by a series of weird accidents, which I won't go into, ended up taking a course in Egyptology. And I loved it. I absolutely adored it. And so at that point, it was kind of too late to change my degree. But from then on, I was interested in, in archaeology. And so I ended up going to graduate school and getting an MA and a PhD and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, it was kind of a weird road. but. <laughs> So we'll go along this road a bit further and take it closer to Kilcullen. In 1968, Dr. Bernard Wales began a six-summer project of excavations on Dunoylena. At the University of Pennsylvania, he had been a friend of the Johnston family. Well, yeah, so he, my father, as I said, was an anthropologist and he was at the University of Pennsylvania. And so was Bernard Wales. And so I knew Bernard before, I mean, I've known Bernard, I knew Bernard basically my whole life. My father was at the university and then we, he got a job in Texas for three years. And so we moved to Texas for three years, but that didn't work out so well. So we came back. Um, so apart from that three years, Bernard came to the university probably around the same year or within a year or two of when my father started working there. And so, I, you know, the name was one I had always known. And, and certainly, you know, they all went to the same parties and, you know, it was certainly something that, you know, when, by the time I went to the university, I knew who Bernard was. The crossover point in Susan Johnston's connection with Kilcullen happened in 2002, when she decided Dr. Wales's Dunoyna project could be a pathway back to Ireland, where she had worked before. Yeah, so I had done my PhD thesis in Ireland looking at rock art. And then through various circumstances, I ended up working in Rhode Island in the U.S. for a number of years um, because that's where I got a job. And so uh, I did North American archaeology for a while, but then uh, my husband got the job that he currently has at George Washington University, and so we moved to this area. And at that point, I thought, well, I could either continue or I could go back because Ireland was kind of my first love. I thought I could go back and do that. And so I was looking, honestly, for a way to kind of get back into it after almost 10 years. And so I thought, well, Bernard had done all this work and he had published some some reports, but he'd never actually formally published all of his excavations. So I approached, I mean, I was very fortunate, you know, unlike people like Chris Lynn working with uh, Waterman's stuff at Navin or, you know, I mean, I had Bernard to talk to. I didn't have to just rely on, you know, kind of the, the although he did a wonderful excavation, I could also ask questions. So that was nice. But I approached him and I said, you know, let's, why don't we publish this site? And he, he agreed. So, um, so yeah, that's what we did. So I started putting it all together and kind of um, synthesizing what he had done and pulled a bunch of people together to sort of contribute various chapters and things. So I didn't write the whole thing myself, but yes. So that's how I kind of got back to, to Ireland and got interested specifically in Dunalnia. Some few years further along, Susan began her own investigations on the Dunalnia site. In the first instance, it wasn't a dig, but a non-invasive survey program, which took place over three summers from 2006. How did that come about? So, a couple of things. So, on the one hand, because excavation takes an enormous amount of time, when Bernard excavated, he only excavated a very tiny portion. I think I reckoned about 10% of the interior within the, within the ditch. And that, that took five years. So that left an enormous amount of the site um, basically unknown. Um, they had actually done a magnetometer survey in 1967 
but the technology wasn't very good. It's actually, it's very cool if you're interested in historical archives. So now you do a magnetometer survey and it takes a reading and it automatically plugs it into the little computer that's on the machine itself, right? But we actually have the notes from 1967 and they wrote down each reading by hand in pencil on a piece of graph paper, <laughs> like hundreds of these things. And so it's, it's, it's incredibly impressive. It, I, I'm, I'm incredibly impressed by people who did these things without the kind of technology I have access to. But at around the same time, Connor Newman was doing this kind of work at Tara. Um, they had done some survey. I think they had done some survey at Navin as well, if I remember correctly. And I, I think it was later that they started doing the same kind of stuff at, um, at Rathcrowan. So this was sort of in the air. And I thought, well, this would be a very useful thing to do because there is, a, I mean, there is sort of all this archaeological evidence for these big circular timber structures on top of the hill. But what were they doing in the rest? And you could have, it could have gone either way. It could be that the structures on the top of the hill were sort of a sacred precinct and nobody was allowed to do anything else in, in the interior. Um, or it could have been stuffed full of things. And as it turns out, it was the latter. So that gives us a way to kind of do that without sort of, as you say, non-invasively um, to get an idea of what's up there to see if we can tie it to what we already know to sort of open up new areas for excavation and things like that. So that's that's we went to the Heritage Council and they gave us the funding to do that. In 2008, the now Professor Emeritus Bernard Wales came back to Kilcullen 40 years after he had first come to the village. The occasion was the dedication of the Dunoyne Interpretive Park, a Kilcullen Community Action Initiative to provide a public information point in the town about the ancient site. Everyone who was there, including Susan, remembers it as a wonderful occasion. Oh, it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, it was fantastic because I had never been at the site with Bernard. Um, you know, I have to tell you, the first, the first time I went to the site was, I think, 2002 or 2003, I forget. Um, and I, because I had been to Ireland before and I, and I went back and I thought, you know, if I'm going to be working doing this book, then, you know, I really should see what it looks like. And so... I went up and, and God love the Thompsons. I'm, I'm so fond of them. They, I literally knocked on their door and said, hi, with no warning. <laughs> I was a student of Bernard Wells's. Isn't that cool? Do you mind if I go up? And they were, they were utterly kind. They fed me lunch. They were wonderful. And so um, I, uh, I got to go up to the site then, but I'd never been there with Bernard. And three things in particular stick out in my head from that. Um, one of them was being up there with Bernard and having him talk about the site and his excavations while you're actually standing on the ground. There's something very useful about that. It, it's very immediate and physical and you can sort of, he can point to things and, and it sort of gives you a different perspective on what's going on up there. The, the second thing was uh, when we had that, we all gave talks down in the Heritage Center in the town hall there uh, later. And it, it was great fun sort of being there again with Bernard and sort of talking about the site and hearing him talk about it and uh, that kind of stuff. And then the other thing I have to say, my children were much younger then uh, and they still remembered the Irish wolfhounds. I, I don't know where the Irish wolfhounds came from. I never found out. I never asked this truth, but they were huge. And my kids had never seen dogs that big. <laughs> they were just, they were very cool. They were beautiful, very well behaved. But and my, I still have a, I have a photograph of my son petting one of them and just looking at it like, this is amazing. <laughs> For many Kilcullen people on that day, 
who had been adults and young people employed to help on the site in the 1960s and 70s, it was an occasion that brought back memories. Those memories would have included the younger Dr. Wales as a genial and friendly man, as well as a dedicated archaeologist. He was a, he was a good man. I mean, I have to say, I try very hard to sort of walk in his footsteps because he, he had that kind of rare combination that he was sort of fiercely bright. He knew an enormous amount and thought a lot about things and had a, a wide-ranging sort of command of knowledge. But he was also, he was very kind and generous. I mean, I... I, I can't tell you how many people I've met in Ireland, archaeologists who, who sort of said, yeah, you know, I turned up at the site and Bernard just dropped what he was doing and gave me a tour. Or, you know, he, he would, you know, invite everybody, you know, down to what was then the hideout, you know, for drinks after and he would pay. And, you know, he was just, he was a very kind man. And I, I always appreciated that. After her initial years here, Susan had completed her magnetometer surveys and had garnered a great deal of information about Dunolina beyond what Bernard Wales had discovered. But however satisfying that might have been, it was never going to be enough. Well, I mean, I'm an archaeologist, so what I want to do is dig. And don't let any archaeologist... So we, we sometimes settle for not digging, but don't let them tell you that that isn't really what they want to do, because it's just a lie. <laughs> so <laughs> we all really want to dig. Now, there are... Let me, be clear, there are other ways to do research, and they're important and valuable, but I suspect most archaeologists, if given the choice, there was, I saw a meme on a, at some point on the internet where it was supposedly a husband and wife talking to each other, and she said, I know you haven't been doing any archaeology, and he says yes, and she says, would you like me to break a pot and bury it out in the backyard for you? And he says, yes, I think I would. <laughs> so, um, the, the magnetometer told us a lot of really interesting things. I mean, there were, there were features up there that we could tie to what we knew from Bernard's excavations. And so that just by itself was really interesting. Um, but there's a, there was a lot of stuff up there. And, and in particular, I mean, apart from just wondering what it is, I have long been interested in sort of what happened. Sort of, so the, the site, by all the evidence, the site sort of goes into kind of a, a, a twilight at the end of you know, what we consider the Iron Age. And, you know, Christianity comes in and the site basically, as near as we can tell, stops being used or inhabited. But there is a lot of evidence up there for other things. And so I, I wonder, you know, are those, is that evidence that the site continued to be used into the early medieval period or something like that? So, so it was partly sort of, you know, when things continued to be done, how long they continued to be done, um, and then some idea of what else is up there other than the timber structures that we know about. So... Um, that's what I did. And then I tried unsuccessfully several times to get funding, and uh, that didn't work out because no one in the U.S., I guess, in the archaeological establishment cares about what's going on in Ireland, which I could do a whole other half-hour rant on, but I won't, <laughs> about why it's important. So, yeah, so then I, again, I, my life has been fortunate. I ran into Finolo Carroll, uh, who is an archaeologist up in Meath, and she runs the Black Friary Archaeological Field School. And I ran into her at a conference and she said, well, you know, if you want to bring students, we can provide sort of the, the infrastructure, you know, sort of the on the ground organization, the tools, you know, that kind of stuff, the support. Um, and we can use sort of student fees to cover that. And that will, that'll get you there. Um, but, you know, I enjoy teaching. I enjoy, you know, I, the students have had an amazing experience working up there and, and being in Kilcullen and so on. And, 
And so um, it, it seemed to tick a lot of boxes. So, uh, so that, that just worked out perfectly. Between 2016 and last year, the summer groups of students have worked in sunshine and in rain, conducting carefully mapped digs under the direction of Susan and Professor Pam Crabtree of New York University. Apart from being an important training exercise, the work did yield confirmation of some of the remote survey findings and also some physical finds. The the timber structures which they knew about from the excavation, it turns out they are enclosed within this larger enclosure that we usually call the summit enclosure because it sort of rings the summit. And we found that with the magnetometer survey. So we did do some excavation in that. Uh, and what we found was that it was a, it's a ditch. It seems to have held posts at one time, but it's unclear how far it may have just been. We were excavating at the entrance to it. And so they may have just been posts on either side of the entrance or something like that. But we have these big chunks and I mean like 40, 50 centimeter chunks of burned wood, presumably from posts. And then a lot of um, sort of burned animal bone in this ditch. So um, on the one hand, we were able to sort of look at it in terms of what we had learned about um, some of the activity up there. So the obvious reason you get animal bone is up there is because people are eating and while you can't rule out that this is sort of everyday ordinary eating, the amount of it suggests that something more like feasting or these sort of large scale, you know, you bring everybody in, you feed them. And what was sort of interesting to me about this was that the, the material inside the ditch of this enclosure was presumably put there when the ditch was filled in. In other words, what we're looking at is what happened after they were sort of using it if that makes sense. So in other words, they build this ditch, they're doing whatever, and then they decide they're finished with that. Um, it's associated with the next to last phase, what's sometimes called the rose phase. The mo phase is the, the last sort of structure up there. Um, and so what I think probably happened was they dismantled the rose phase, they dumped a load of stuff in the ditch to kind of close it up, and then they started building the last phase. And so, uh, you can sort of envision, for example, it's like, all right, lads, we have to come up here and we have to dismantle this thing. We'll feed you all if you come up. And so what we're looking at is, you know, kind of the, the result of that. And somewhere some stuff got burned. Um, again, it's, it's sort of unclear whether they, it looks like a lot of it might have been burned in place. So maybe they thought the easiest way to re remove some of the posts was simply to burn them and then dump the remains in there. Maybe there was some sort of ritual meaning involved in that. You know, the idea of we have to sort of formally close this thing. And so we do that by burning it, something like that. Um, so that was really interesting um, to me. And then the other thing uh, that we found from that, that was in 2016, um, that we found we got, because of those burned posts, we, we were able to get um, dates. So. There's a lot of, I don't want to go into all the esoterica of radiocarbon dating, but take it, just take it as through no fault of Bernard's, his dates were not entirely reliable, let's put it that way. And it wasn't his fault. It had to do with the technology and so on and what they had to do. And, and so we were able to get dates from that ditch that suggested that the, the site is actually a couple of hundred years earlier than they thought. Um, that actually, that paper just came out in Imania, which is a publication that comes out of Northern Ireland, the Navin Research Group up there. And so that was really useful too. So it looks like that activity was going on in the sort of first to second century BCE. 
uh, whereas Bernard thought that maybe it was the very end of the sort of BC into the first few centuries CE or AD. And so that was interesting to me too. We also, um, we just sent off finally the, the radiocarbon lab in Belfast just opened up again. And so because of this dating issue, um, we actually uh, got some money to do a, a new campaign of dating. So we took the animal bone from Bernard's original excavations and we, we are going to do a series of radiocarbon dates to try to get a better handle on um, how the whole sort of sequence at the site. So stay tuned for that. One particular find was small but opened up a discussion about how long into medieval times there had been people coming to Denoilna. It seems definitive that it was later than previously thought. We found this medieval, early medieval bead. It's the ugliest thing I ever saw. <laughs> we thought, we actually, it was kind of a joke when we first found it. It looked like some horrible 1970s, like hippie necklace. It's, it's big and kind of, you know, garish looking. <laughs> and so we were teasing Pam Crabtree, um, who, who is, works with us. And, uh, you know, because she excavated, she also excavated with, with Bernard when she was an undergraduate. And so we, we were teasing her that she lost it from a necklace you know, when she was up there, but when we brushed the dirt off of it and looked at it, realized that it was glass, which is sort of the standard thing in early, in the uh, early medieval period. And unlike a lot of beads that, that Bernard found up there, which are kind of, they're, they're pretty and they're definitely sort of either Iron Age or early medieval, but they're kind of, they're just blue glass. There's not a lot on them, but this that you can sort of use to identify when they came from. But this one is, it's a very distinct type it's a trade, it was traded probably from France. Uh, so either somebody had connections or perhaps personally went there. And it's very sort of specifically dated to sort of the sixth or seventh century. What that tells us, as I was saying before, I, I'm sort of, I'm always interested in sort of what happened. Sort of they're doing all these things in the Iron Age and then what? Did they just sort of pack up, lock the door and say, that's it, we're done, we're all Christians now? Or did it sort of fade off slowly? And I'm, I suspect it's more the latter. And so we've been curious about, you know, sort of, is there evidence for medieval activity up there? Um, certainly Bernard didn't find any. And if there was a lot of medieval activity up there, you would have expected to. You know, you would have expected the kind of standard sort of bone combs and, and things like that, that um, you typically find on early medieval sites, the pottery and, and all that, and that you don't find that up there. So. This indicates definitively and without question that somebody was up there in the early Middle Ages. What that means, again, we don't know. The bead was found just under the sod layer, so that doesn't tell us a lot archaeologically. You can't tie that to something that we know for sure. The two possibilities are somebody just dropped it, which in which case they were probably very annoyed when they got home. They were just walking around up there or whatever. Um, or it is possible it came from some other feature that has not yet been explored. So we know that the area was plowed in, up into the 19th century. Uh, we found, in fact, plow marks uh, when we were excavating in 2019. And so um, that is the sort of stuff that tends to disturb things that are close to the surface. So it's possible it got churned up from some other site and has been kicked around and so on. But it tells us minimally what it tells us is somebody was up there with international connections and perhaps, you know, they either, uh, they either lost a bead or there's some other site up there 
in which the bead was deposited for some intentional reason. So, you know, and again, it makes sense, you know, because we, we use these terms like Iron Age and early medieval people and pre-Christianity and post-Christianity, but people on the ground wouldn't have noticed any of that, right? For them, it was just life. And then this new religion kind of filters in. And probably in the early days, it wasn't staggeringly different from what they'd been doing before. And so slowly but surely, these things kind of change. And so people are kind of having this religious experience that, you know, who they're talking to in terms of deities is different and how they're doing it is different. But their daily lives probably aren't changing staggeringly. So, you know, it, it kind of makes sense that it didn't just sort of end definitively at some moment, that it kind of fizzled into sort of slowly the next period. And that's probably what we're starting to see up there. Between the eight summers of work of Bernard Wales and the two periods of investigation by Susan Johnston and Pam Crabtree, much has been learned about Dunolna. It has solidified the importance of the hill amongst the key archaeological sites of Ireland. But during the recent campaign by Ballyshannon residents against a proposed quarry, the question of its place in its wider archaeological landscape was raised. One of the things that is, it's very easy to forget when you are site-focused that it, it was not the only thing there. There's a huge complex landscape that in Ireland people have been living on for thousands of years. If you look, for example, out on the Curra, there are all kinds of sites out there, little circular things and what were probably burials and things like that. So Dunalanya certainly is an important thing, but it's not the only thing in that landscape. And so we know that people are moving, they're living in that landscape, they're moving through it, they're burying their dead in that landscape. And so Zenobi Garrett, uh, who, is, who also uh, works with us, my colleague, um, she uh, is applying for some money to try, try to do some survey um, in the fields around the actual hill itself, precisely for that reason, to try to get some idea of what else is in that landscape. And that evidence is still there. You know, I said earlier that plows disturb stuff that's close to the surface, but most of archaeology is not that close to the surface. And so that evidence is still there. And so that's the concern with things like quarrying, which are going to go through. They're not going to be careful. They're going to turn stuff up and they're going to miss an archaeological landscape. And I will say that in the case of Dunalnia and all of the other, um, the so-called royal sites, when they were nominated for UNESCO World Heritage status, they were nominated in as themselves, but they were also nominated because they were situated in landscapes that still have evidence for use and that are an integral part of the way that the site was experienced. You know, you're on the hill, you saw, you can see sites around you. They could then, when they were moving to the hill to perform ceremonies or rituals or whatever they did up there, they're moving through sites, they're coming from their homes, they're walking up, they're walking past burials, they're, you know, they're sort of experiencing their landscape as they move through that. And so, yes, the site is important, but the site is not isolated. I mean, imagine, you know, one of the cathedrals in Dublin, right? You wouldn't want to say, well, we've got the cathedral, so we can just torch the rest of it. Right? We don't really care what's around it. That makes no sense because the cathedrals, you know, are integrally related to what is around them. So they're not, they're not just sitting there in, in sort of isolated splendor. They're part of a lived experience of people. And in the case of archaeology, we have that evidence. 
Dunoyana is part of land owned and farmed by the Thompson family in Kilcullen. As such, it is not open to the public. But Susan Johnston is very appreciative of the generosity of the Thompsons in allowing the archaeological investigations to continue down the years. And she hopes very much that the Thompsons' privacy rights are respected and that the site is not tramped on by sightseers. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I will just underline that it's not just because we don't want anybody playing in our sandbox. There are legit, I mean, there are cattle up there. They have been known to get upset and break fences. We don't want people sort of messing up the archaeological remains. One of the most important things in archaeology is finding things where they were put. And if people move them, that takes away an important piece of the evidence that we have. And so, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, they, they are very generous. Um, if, if you ask, they might let you take a look. But if you don't ask, that is just, that's, that's just rude <laughs> socially. I mean, it's just plain rude. And so, so, yeah, in these days when rudeness is all too common, um, let's, let's strike a blow for politeness um, and, and be kind. Finally, in this year, unlike all other years, one of the frustrations for Susan was not being able to come back this summer to continue her work on Dunoljana and to meet again with many of the friends she has made here since beginning her annual migrations from the US to Ireland. She is hopeful, though, that she'll be back again next year. Oh, God, uh, I hope so. Let me say this. I am planning to be there in 2021. If it all goes south and I can't, then I can't. But, you know, I already have six students who've asked me if they can come. And, you know, so I'm certainly planning to come. We have ideas about what we're going to do to expand on um, what we've excavated so far. I have spoken to the Thompsons and they have generously said yes. Um, so everybody's on board. If the virus cooperates, you will definitely see me on your doorstep. Uh, we, we miss you all very, very much and we hope to come back. And that was Dr. Susan Johnston, archaeologist, anthropologist, unlocker of ancient secrets, especially in Kilcullen, for which she has developed a particular graw, the Irish word for love for those who don't have the language. And I thank her for her time for this programme. I'm Brian Byrne. This is Kilcullen Diary. Thanks for listening.